Matthew 5, verses 1 to 20 together. And then, uh, and then we'll go from there. Verse 1. This is the famous Sermon on the Mount. The introduction is known as the Beatitudes because every verse, every statement begins with the word blessed. And uh, we will discuss that a little bit. They're very popular but very misunderstood, um, this, this part of the Bible. So let's read. Seeing the crowds, verse 1, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, here they are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give, your glory, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's a question for you. What is a Christian? I have a feeling that uh, if we were to go around the room and each of us share our answer to that, we might get some very differing opinions of what that is. And there's been a lot of defining and redefining what a Christian is in the world. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed but I mean, there are some in the center of the church, more conservative, and uh, they would have a more stricter view of what a Christian is. You've got to believe certain things. You've got to read a certain translation of the Bible. You've got to do all these different things and, you know, dot your I's, cross your T's. You've got to have a certain size Bible case and whatever it might be. And, uh, well, then we'll consider you to be a Christian, at least a Christian to our caliber. There are others and uh, outside the church, and uh, they look at Christians from the outside, and they have all kinds of terms for them. I mean, just recently, uh, the vice president of the United States was made fun of because, well, he actually thinks that Jesus talks to him. 
right? And there are a lot of terms that come out. Some of them are, I, I don't know if I should say they're justified, but I think sometimes we've brought it on ourselves. But terms like intolerant and judgmental and self-righteous and snobbish and, of course, hypocritical. Isn't that a big one? No one these days likes a hypocrite. Christians are haters. They're anti-abortion. They're anti-everything. Don't you know, right? Have you heard these things? In other words, they hate women. They hate certain groups of people. Some of them are even considered racist and so on. And so what happens is that in the culture, there are Christians who look at this and say, wow, that kind of hurts. And in fact, maybe some of it's true. And so if it's true, what we're going to do is we're going to reinvent an image of what Christianity is. Okay, so we're going to redefine Christianity, and we're going to become authentic. Yeah, authentic. That's what we want. We're going to become real so that people can see we're just like you. We're just like everyone else. And so the redefinition of Christianity goes, and I think it's just cycling. It just keeps cycling around until no one has a clue what Christianity is anymore. What it is at its core, right? At its very center. What is a Christian? In fact, Josh Reebok wrote a, a piece in Relevant Magazine a number of years ago on this subject. And uh, he, he kind of voiced the craving for authenticity. That's what people want to see. And he said, we don't want to be fooled anymore. We don't want to be gullible anymore. We want to be us with people that don't pretend to be something they are not. We want flawed we want imperfect. We want real. And this kind of corduroy rather than polyester faith is growing and uh, is a growing and refreshing influence in the world today. And so in our modern Christian culture, authenticity becomes the ultimate virtue and hypocrisy becomes the ultimate sin. Ultimate. Authenticity is more important than anything else. If we're not authentic, we're not Christian. And it replaces the call to witness to the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, some of this, I get it. But I think there's a question we are missing, a question we need to ask. Rather than what is a Christian and hear a variety of answers, what we need to be asking is, what is an authentic Christian? Or what is authentic Christianity? What is authentically Christian? Where would we go to find an answer like that? Maybe the author of Christianity? Where would we go to find anything he says about what it is at its core? And I think that's where we are. Matthew 5. In fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount is about authentic Christianity. The whole thing. And if you read through it from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, you'll see all the references. He is speaking into hypocrisy for sure. There was a lot of hypocrisy in the Jewish religion of that time. And, and uh, the, the Pharisees, the scribes had set up a standard and said, now this is the bar. And you must keep this bar. Oh, you can't keep this? Well, then you're not as good as us. But you can try. Right? You can imagine how appealing that message was. And that's what Jesus was speaking into with the Sermon on the Mount. The difference between authentic and fake or counterfeit. 
In the end, when he speaks of a broad way and a narrow way, I had always seen it all my life as just the way between believers and unbelievers. And if you take it in the context of the sermon, what he's really talking about is an authentic Christianity that follows Christ and takes up his cross and a counterfeit type or many different counterfeit types that take an easy way and still look good, but they end in a bad spot, right? We are in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, more specifically, we are in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount known as the Beatitudes. A couple of things we need to understand about them. I am your tour guide, so I have to explain a few things, right? As we're going along, now on your left, you will see whatever. And here it is. The Beatitudes are not, they are not just about happy people, okay? The, the word blessed, actually, makarios in Greek does mean happy, and, but it seems a little strange, doesn't it, to say happy are those who mourn? I'm not happy. I'm mourning. I'm sad. I'm very sad. Or happy are those who are persecuted? Not quite. Not quite. That doesn't make sense. But the idea of blessed is the idea, one scholar put it, of people who have found the good life, the really good life, the authentically good life, a good life that ends in a good spot, even though it doesn't appear so. In fact, Don Carson went even further and said to be blessed means fundamentally, now this is key, and I hope you keep this in your minds as we move along, to be blessed is fundamentally to be approved. Okay, that idea, that concept's going to keep coming back to us as we move along, but to be approved. And he says, to go even further than that, since this is God's universe, there can be no higher blessing than to be approved by God. Keep that in the back of your mind. Something else. The Beatitudes are not describing different types of people. The Beatitudes are describing one type of person from different points of view. That's what's going on. We could prove it. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time on that. I kind of did that with the first service. And uh, if, if you have questions about that, we can talk later. But that is the reality. And as we go through, I hope it begins to make sense that what Jesus is doing, in fact, by the time he gets to verse 13 and he says, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking to one group of people. He's not talking to you know, the, the poor in spirit over here and the grieving people over here and the meek over there. He's talking to one group of people, one type of people that have these characteristics. And he is going to move through these blessings in a very systematic, orderly way. So we're going to follow through with them. And we're going to do it with three different groupings, three different terms. Okay, so if you want to remember them, this is where we're heading. We're going to look, first of all, from the inward perspective what does Jesus describe as the inward aspect of an authentic Christian or follower of Christ? Secondly, we're going to look from the upward perspective, the upward aspect of an authentic Christian. And the last one is the outward perspective. How does an authentic Christian reach outward to the rest of the world? So that's where we're heading. And uh, let's move along. First one, the inward aspect of authentic Christianity, here's a statement that we need to remember. Authentic Christianity is not primarily, primarily, key word, about what we say or do. It is about what we say or do, and it is about what we believe, but it's not primarily about those things. It's deeper than that. We need to understand this this morning. This is part of what the culture is not quite getting. Christians are not just people who all believe the same things. Christians are not just people who all just sit around the campfire and sing the same songs. It's deeper than that. 
Because Christians, an authentic Christian, is primarily about who we are. So Jesus is going to take the surgeon's knife, the scalpel, and he's going to start cutting back the layers until we get to the heart of what a Christian, and a real Christian, really is deep inside. All right, are we ready for this? There are three Beatitudes that deal with this. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek. One at a time. First of all, let's remember this. An authentic Christian, who is he? Who is she? Nothing, they have nothing to offer and no reason to boast. Nothing to offer, no reason to brag. They're not bragging on themselves because we find out immediately they're poor in spirit. All right, a lot of people will read this and at surface, on face value, it, they, they think, and it, quite, it could have been possible for their, the audience at that time to think the same thing. This is talking about people who are financially poor. It's like saying, blessed are the homeless, theirs is the kingdom of God. And while there might be some truth to the virtues of poverty in this sense, because if, if you want to take that at face value, you want to go with it, let's go with it for a moment. A lot of times poverty, financial poverty in the Bible had everything to do with spiritual poverty. Because people in the Bible who were poor, I mean poor, they didn't have welfare, they didn't have government enabling them, it was a death wish on them, and the only person they could turn to was the Lord to help them. So not only were they financially poor, but they understood, I have nothing to offer myself, I have nothing to provide for myself, no reason to boast, I got to call out to the Lord. So you see this all the way through the Old Testament. God tells his people, the Israelites, he tells them, I want you to look out for the fatherless, I want you to look out for the widow, and I want you to look out for the foreigner, because they can't provide for themselves. They don't have a family unit around them. They don't have people to provide for them. They don't have some natural source of, of the things that they need. They don't have that. And they're going to turn to me, and I'm going to use you the Israelites, my chosen people, I'm going to use you to provide for them. So the story of Ruth in the Old Testament is a story like that. It kind of describes that. You can read it in about 15 minutes. There's also, the prophets in the Old Testament used to say things like this when they were preaching the good news. Good news of God's forgiveness and good news of how God was going to provide for his people. And he would say, rejoice, O barren woman. I'd say, well, what's the significance of that? Of course. Women who have trouble having children are very sad. Yes, that's true. But it was worse than that in the Bible. In ancient times, in the ancient Near East, when the prophets were speaking, they were speaking into a culture that if you were barren, if you didn't have children, you wouldn't survive on your own. Because you had children, not just so you could cheer for them at their ball games and hockey games. You had children so that and pay for their college. You had children so that they could carry on the family business and they could protect you. So they would protect the family. They didn't have, back then, they didn't have police officers and they didn't have security guards. No, that was up to the family. It was kind of like the mafia, right? That's how I don't mess with the family. But that's the way it was. So when the prophet said, Rejoice, O barren woman, what he was saying was, You have nothing to provide for yourself, you're poor. You have nothing you can do. And there's nothing more helpless than that feeling of childlessness. There's nothing more helpless than that. that the, it's completely out of your control. And the prophet is saying, but God's going to provide for you. 
You're not looking forward to just destruction and devastation. God's going to provide for you. And that was good news to people who were poor in spirit. And the truth is, an authentic Christian is someone who has come to experience, not just learn about, like, oh, I read my Bible, and I understand there's this theory that I'm spiritually in poverty, bankrupt. No, it's more than that. They come to experience the fact that I have absolutely nothing. All my good works, my religion, my Bible reading, my talents, my athletics, whatever it is. And after all that, I have absolutely nothing that I can offer to God. Nothing that approves me. Nothing that I can reach His standard. And what happens? As a result of having nothing to bring... Well, the reaction of an authentic Christian is they are broken hearted. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. He's not talking about people that come out of funeral homes. Yes, they're sad. There are lots of Christians and lots of non-Christians who are grieving. We live in a broken world. But Christians, an authentic Christian, is not just grieving the effects of a broken world. They're grieving the root of it. And the root of it is our rebellion against our creator. It's called sin. That's the root of it. Just like uh, G.K. Chesterton, maybe you've heard the famous quote. G.K. Chesterton was once asked, he was written to by a newspaper and asked to write an essay on what the problem with the world was. So he wrote back and uh, he, he, he said, uh, Dear sirs, in answer to your question for an essay, request for an essay on uh, what is the problem with the world, I am... Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Do you get it? Chesterton understood, I'm the problem with the world. An authentic Christian, that breaks their heart. That my rebellion against God, my spiritual bankruptcy, and what does that lead to? Blessed are the meek. Meek people are not doormats. That's not what they are. They're not just the timid people afraid of their shadow. That's not what Jesus was referring to. He's referring to people who don't have an over-exaggerated view of themselves. In fact, it's a very realistic view of themselves. In fact, notice what he says about them. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the word for earth is the idea of the land. You ever been in a property dispute? We've never been in one, but thankfully. But uh, we watched neighbors that were in one once, and of course... Try to build a fence in that situation, right? It's like, no, two inches over. That's my property right there, right? Or even in the back seat of the car, don't cross the line. I will tell mom, this is my side, right? It's just in us. We have our rights. You don't have a right to be rude to me. You don't have a right to cut me off. That was my property on the 401. I deserve it. No, an authentic Christian understands. doesn't just give up their rights. An authentic person is not, a Christian is not just saying, okay, I'm giving up all rights. No, no. An authentic Christian who has realized their bankruptcy spiritually and they're grieving it understands, I don't have any rights. I don't have any rights. In fact, you listening? The only property that I have rights to is hell because I've rebelled against my creator and I know it 
The Bible's pretty clear, and this is why I believe the Bible, is because it says it like it is. Blessed are the meek, people who realize don't have any rights. All right, what do we get from this for a moment? First of all, we get the reality that at the deepest core of the attitude and of, a, of an authentic Christian, there's no bragging on themselves. They're not walking around saying, well, I'm a good Christian because look how much of the Bible I know. Look at how much church I go to. No, that's not authentically Christian. An authentic Christian says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's it. Also, an authentic Christian doesn't celebrate sin. They hate it. They grieve it. It cuts them deep. They don't laugh at it. And our notion, listen to this. This was an article written by Brett McCracken. Great article contrasting authenticity to holiness. And he's making the, the point, have we replaced our pursuit of holiness with our pursuit of authenticity in the world? And he says our notion of authenticity should not primarily be about affirming each other in our struggles, patting each other on the back as we share about porn struggles while enjoying a second round of beers at the local pub Bible study. Rather, authenticity comes when we collectively push each other by grace in the direction of Christ-likeness. See, it's not about all of us getting together in a huddle and saying, yeah, you got problems? Yeah, I got problems. Yeah. Well, I'm a mess too. I'm a complete train wreck. Oh, good. Whew. Relief. Now I can talk to you too. This is great. I'm comfortable with you. All right. We all comfortable with each other? Yes. Authenticity. Isn't this great? Now let's go out and share this with the world. Just how much of a train wreck we are. Are you missing something here? <laughs> Do we have a message worth telling the world? Apart from just sharing all, or just laying it all out there. I mean, look, look at what I'm up to. No, you see, this is what moves to the next point, okay? Inwardly, got nothing to offer. There's nothing there. Got no reason to brag on myself. I'm not going to work. I've, I'm here. All the problems are going to be solved. All right, I showed up. No need to worry. No, no, but look at what, what they are doing. They're not looking inside for any kind of provision. They're looking upward. This is the next one. The upward aspect, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. All right, authentic, authentic Christianity is not about what we do for ourselves. That's pretty clear. But it is about what has been done for us. This is the good news. This is the good news because authentic Christians point away from themselves and they point directly to Jesus. He's our champion. He is our righteousness. He's the one who fulfills everything that, that is approved of God. That's who he is. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Now, there are a lot of people in the world who aren't hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They're not hungry and thirsty at all. They got everything they need. Pretty talented have a lot of wealth, have a lot of success. Sometimes, you know, I, I, I work with people that are very successful and I look around and go, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my life? Man, these people have it going for them, right? Back and forth to Florida every other week, that kind of thing. Then there are people who are hungry and thirsty and the world is full of them. They just don't know what they're hungry and thirsty for. 
So they think, maybe if, maybe if I indulge in, well, maybe I'm hungry and thirsty. Maybe it's sex that will fulfill me. Maybe it's food, right? That will finally give me what I'm looking for. Maybe it's fitness. If I just take one more inch off, then people will finally approve me. Maybe it's business success, whatever it is. And we're hungry and thirsty for these things. But an authentic Christian at their deepest core understands none of those things matter. They're secondary. What I really need is to be approved by God. That's what righteousness is. That's what Jesus was referring to. I need to be approved by God. Listen to how C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity explained it. He said, If you have sound nerves and intelligence and health and popularity and a good upbringing, check, 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 you're likely to be quite satisfied with your character as it is. Say, I am. Thank you very much. It is very different for the nasty people, Lewis says. The little, low, timid, warped, thin-blooded, lonely people, or the passionate, sensual, unbalanced people. If they make any attempt at goodness at all, they learn in double-quick time that they need help. It is Christ or nothing for them. It is taking up the cross and following or else despair. They are the lost sheep. He came specially to find them. They are, in one very real and terrible sense, the poor. He blessed them. They are the awful set he goes about with. And of course, the Pharisees say still, as they said from the first, if there were anything to Christianity, those people would not be Christians. Now it's the poor people that come to Jesus. And why do they come to Jesus? Because he is everything they're not. He has everything they don't have. <laughs> Think about this. He lived a perfect life, and he demonstrated it. He went out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and after it was all done, he was still saying, God is good. God is worth trusting. I am not going to feed on food. I'm going to feed on his word. I wouldn't have lasted 24 hours. I don't know about you. But Jesus Christ was perfect. He could not sin. He couldn't rebel against his father. And he went straight to the cross because that was his father's will. And he was completely determined to do it. He is righteousness. Notice what he says later on. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Every little grammatical point in, on the paper, I'm going to fulfill every single detail of what God demands and what God promises. I'm going to do it all. And that's exactly what he did. And then he says to these people, he says, you lower the standard, you're not getting in. I'm not here to lower the standard. I'm here to fulfill it. And then he says in verse 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, boy, they set the bar high. He says they, they lowered the bar. That's what they've done. And unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of like the other night we were watching... Um, the snowboard competition, the big air snowboard competition, I was getting kind of dizzy just looking at the screen, right? You see the, the shot where the guys are standing at the top looking down? I, I always wonder, there are certain things, you always wonder, who was the first guy who said this would be a good idea? <laughs> I, 
and, and looking down, and it's, it's like Jesus is saying, okay, um, it was a Canadian that won, right? Gold. And uh, it's like Jesus is saying, okay, unless you can exceed the jump that Sebastian, was that his name? Sebastian Teuton? Unless you can exceed the jump that he made that won the gold, you're not getting out alive, right? And I, I, I'd be thinking, well, if I even go down that hill, I'm not getting out alive. For sure, right? I don't have a hope. Do you know what I need? I need a champion to take my place and to make the perfect jump for me. That's what I need, right? And that's exactly what Jesus offers. Listen to how Paul said it. The Apostle Paul actually said it this way. He said, so, this is what God did in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5. Now, I want you to understand this. With God's help, let's, let's try to make this clear. He said that God made Jesus to be sin for us. Okay? Not just to carry sin for us, but to be sin for us. Now stop and think of what that is. Okay? God looks down at the cross, and in some way, Jesus, right? Perfect righteousness is on the cross, but in some way, God made that to be sin. And God is righteous. He hates sin. We can't describe how righteously he hates sin, but he hates it with a fury. And for an eternal, powerful God, that's pretty bad. And, and, and he looks at that sin, and he unleashes all of his anger and all of his fury on sin. But the problem is, the thing is, that's Jesus, who is taking all of that fury and that wrath and that, that anger and that punishment. He's taking it on that cross. Paul says, God made Jesus to be sin for us. Why? So that, okay, Paul, why? So that we over here might be made, you ready for this? This is awesome. Righteousness. That righteousness we can't do ourselves. We can't provide it. We can't make it. And over here, Jesus takes the sin. He becomes sin. And God judges him so that we are made righteousness. And now God looks at us and he sees righteousness. You say, but I don't, you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand my past. Well, I understand that your past and what you've done is over there on Jesus. And that because of that, because of that, this is awesome. Because of that, you, me, can be made righteous. And now God looks at us. He sees righteousness and he can unleash his everlasting love and faithfulness on us forever and call us his children. Is there anything more awesome than that? And I don't know. <laughs> I hope there's someone here this morning. You're hungry and thirsty for that, right? Is that what you're looking for? Because that is authentic Christianity. I'm broken. Jesus saved me, right? That is where it's at. In fact, Lewis actually takes this and he, he says, you know, Jesus didn't come to make us better. Let's read what he said. He said, God became man to turn creatures into sons. Wow. Creatures into sons. He included daughters. I realize the culture we're living in today. 
you understand, Lewis was writing a few years ago, and uh, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like, it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better. No, no, that's not the Christian message. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. It's a whole new thing. And what happens? That upward aspect of pointing to Jesus, hungering for Jesus, looking for Jesus, what happens? It turns into an outward aspect. This is number three. And outwardly, as, as an authentic Christian reaches out to the world... Authentic Christianity is not the result of good works, okay? By our good works, we don't create a Christian identity. We're, we're not saying, okay, we need to go on missions so that the world sees it and, uh, and they like Christians. That's not what it is. It's the other way around. Because good works are the result of authentic Christianity. They're the result of people who have been broken who have been confronted by their own rebellion, their own helplessness, they've run to Jesus, and now they look around at the world and they say, this world needs Jesus big time. Lord, can you use me? I'm kind of busted up here. I still sin once in a while. Yeah, I can use you. The Bible's full of it. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. In fact, I'll, I'll do the ultimate blessing. I will discipline you and pull the idols out of your heart so you will trust only me and nothing else. Right? That is amazing, amazing news. And this is the outward aspect of the rest of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And blessed are the peacemakers. This is quite a mixture, by the way. There's no mixture like this, quite like this in the world. Compassion integrity and reconciliation or advocacy if you want to put it that way it's authentic compassion it's you know someone can make the case and say but non-christians and people of other religions are compassionate too yes they are but the uniqueness about the christian message makes people who are truly christian who have been truly broken by the cross of Jesus Christ, makes them compassionate, not just towards helpless people, but towards hurtful people. Compassionate towards enemies. In fact, Jesus is going to refer to that as he moves on in the sermon. He's going to tell the people, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean do this so that you can be in the family of God. What it means is do this so you can reflect the very family you're a part of. Reflect your father. That's what it meant to be a son back then. You did what your father did. Right? That's how they viewed it. Your father was a farmer. You're a farmer. Your father was a carpenter. You're a carpenter. You carried on the family line most of the time. That's the way it works. So that's what he's saying. Your father does this. You do this. So that you can be sons of your father. Love your enemies. I remember listening to Tommy Nelson on the subject of marriage. He did a series on this. It's uh, quite good. And uh, I remember him talking about how he would do marriage counseling at times. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's usually the, the guy's usually clueless to what's going on, right? And it's usually the wife that's going for counseling first. And, uh, and, and she would walk into his office 
And she'd be telling him all the negative aspects, the negative virtues of her husband. And um, he, w- he, he would finally say to her, well, can you love him? No, I can't love him. I can't. Did you not just hear? What... Can you love him as a friend? Not, not, not just as your husband, your soulmate, but as a friend? No, no. Can you love him as a brother? No, no, I'm not even sure he's a Christian. You ready for this? Tommy Nelson would say, well, can you love him as an enemy? I think I know where you're going with this, and I don't like it. All right? Because Jesus calls us not to just be compassionate towards friends and people that are compassionate towards us, but towards enemies, people on the other side of the aisle. That is a mark of authentic Christianity. But it's not just, oh, accept everyone, accept everything they're doing. Don't worry about morals and don't worry about biblical standards and things like that. But there's this mixture, and Jesus actually demonstrated this, and I wish I knew just how he drew people to him that were obviously on the other side of the tracks. Right? He's a Jewish rabbi, and here are prostitutes and tax collectors, thieves, lowlifes, and they're just drawn to him. But it's not because he's saying, come on, your lifestyle doesn't matter to me. No, he was attracting them. He was making them hungry for repentance. He, he wasn't just doing this merciful act that was just accepting everything. But it was pure in heart. There was integrity involved. Well, this brings up a little bit of a situation in our world because a lot of times hypocrisy is, uh, is brought out as the idea that, well, and this comes with the authenticity movement, to be truly authentic, you have to be true to your feelings. And if you're not, I mean, if you're angry, you just wear it on your sleeve. Be transparent. That's authentic. And if you're angry and you stuff it, well, you're being hypocritical. So if you're not in love with him anymore, the authentic thing to do would be to leave him. You're not in love with him. Be true to your feelings. There's a professor uh, from Biola University, and uh, this is actually, Brent McCracken actually quotes him as well in his article. Uh, his name is Eric uh, Taunus, and, and uh, he replies to this idea, uh, this misguided idea of hypocrisy, and he says, no, no, it's not, it's not about living according to your feelings. It's about living according to your beliefs. In fact, he actually says, to live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel, that's not hypocrisy. That's integrity. Well, I really don't love him, so I'm not going to be nice to him. And love isn't a feeling, first of all. It's a choice. It's a commitment. It's a resolve. Blessed are the pure in heart. And genuine love, genuine compassion, the genuine pursuit of holiness, isn't that what we're looking for? Genuine compassion says, what you're doing disturbs me. It angers me. That's true, but I love your soul. And I see that what you're doing is going to ruin you. It's going to take you down. You're going to be destroyed under the judgment of God. And that is far more important than anything you have done. 
And while you need to be confronted with what you've done, you need forgiveness. You need repentance. You need to understand where you're headed is a wrong direction. I'm not going to accept that. No, no, I love you too much. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And of course, that leads to blessed are the peacemakers. These are not people who pacify other people all the time, okay? All right? So the kid's throwing the tantrum. And oh, I got to be a peacemaker. Jesus told me to be a peacemaker. So please, any toy, whatever it is, whatever he wants, what is it you want? We're in Walmart for crying out loud and people are watching. Peacemaker, peacemaker just says, calm the kid down. No, it doesn't. Because a true peacemaker reconciles with the truth, with reality. This is why the next beatitude is blessed are those who are persecuted because real peacemakers, they confront sin. They do it lovingly, but they confront sin. Hey, Sonny, you keep that up. I'm taking you out of here. You're not coming back again. That's true peacemaking. It's not merely pacify, pacify, pacify. Do whatever it takes. Peacemaking does not give the lunch to the bully. Because all that does is enable the bully to keep creating havoc for everyone else. You want a great example of this? Rachel Den Hollander, uh, Pastor Aaron actually mentioned him a few weeks ago, or her, a few weeks ago, who stood up to her abuser, Dr. Larry Nasser, and uh, she was the first one to actually come forward publicly. She, she said it. It's not about doing what's comfortable, it's about doing what's right. The other side of the story with her and her husband is they had to stand up to their church. That was enabling abusers. You know what happens, and there may be some here who are victims of abuse, and the world will tell you, and people around you, and even your own family members will say, if you come forward with this, you're going to drag our family through the mud, and don't do it, whatever you do, don't do it. Be a peacemaker. If you do this, it's going to create a lot of problems for a lot of people. True peacemaking always, always reconciles to the truth. True peacemaking brings people to God, makes peace with God, advocates for righteousness. That's what true peacemaking does. That's a true peacemaker. And that's why true peacemakers are persecuted. They stand up and say, this is wrong and it can't keep going. No, I'm not going to stand down. I'm going to stand here and witness to the fact that this is sin. And if you keep doing it, you're going to ruin yourself and you're going to ruin many people around you. That's true peacemaking. It's quite a mixture. It's really a unpopular goodness, I think we could call it. It's a very unique mixture. Jesus isn't saying just tolerate everything. He's saying bring people to the truth. Bring people to repentance. What's the outcome of authentic Christianity? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said back in the 20th century, He said, the world today is looking for and desperately needs true Christians, true, authentic Christians. I hope we've defined that today. And he said, I am never tired of saying that what the church needs to do is not to organize evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin herself to live the Christian life. 
Maybe God will raise up another Billy Graham. I thought about that this week. Maybe that's how he'll bring revival. Or maybe he'll bring revival just one authentic Christian peacemaker at a time who just points to Jesus as the champion and the Savior. Are there benefits to being an authentic Christian? Of course there are. The first one is the fact that no other identity gives this kind of freedom. It's freeing to understand that I'm approved by God. I have nothing left to prove. I don't have to be awesome all the time. Right? I don't have to create an image on social media all the time to be approved. Right? Authentic Christians. Just, it, the, the message really is, relax, okay? You've been approved by God. You're a child, a son, a daughter of the living God. What else do you need? It's incredibly freeing to understand that no matter what I do, no matter how far I might fall or fail, whether it's at work or at home or whatever, there are a lot of things I'd like to live up to too. I'd like to actually be a good father. Wouldn't that be great? And some days I'm not headed there. But Jesus died for me. He's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. He's enough for me. Wow, that's freeing. Secondly, it gives fulfillment. It fills us. It satisfies us. I've got the righteousness of Christ. I'm approved by God. I don't have to be hungry and thirsty for all these other things like a hamster on a wheel. They can go an incredibly long distance and not go anywhere. We just keep clamoring, clamoring, clamoring. What else do I need to be satisfied? Nothing. You need Christ. Third, no other identity gives this kind of unity. This is powerful, by the way. This is where true Christian unity is. Okay? I understand we have to serve and worship together based on the doctrines we believe the Bible teaches. I get that. But our unity runs so much deeper than that because our unity is based on who we are our spiritual DNA, who we are. It's just a connection. You can meet a Christian from the other side of the world and just connect like that because you're both broken and in love with Christ. There's just that common bond, right? There's that... You ever seen people who were adopted and separated and siblings that just get reunited? There's just this bond there, right? And Christian unity isn't about, hey, we all sing the same songs and believe the same things. No, it runs so much deeper than that. It runs deep inside the heart. It gives a special, a unique kind of unity. And lastly, it gives the ultimate reward. This sermon is filled with a relationship with a heavenly Father. And it also warns that if you miss, if you miss authentic conversion to Christ, you've missed everything. Literally, Everything. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how talented you are. You die without Jesus Christ. You've missed everything. So the question remains. Not merely are you a Christian. With all the definitions floating out there, you could probably say yes to at least one of them. But are you authentically Christian according to Jesus? Because that's all that matters. <laughs> 